1: Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkwaran. More importantly, today I have the double delight of welcoming to the podcast um, co-editors, uh, uh, Dr. Vera Lazaretti, who is researcher at the Center for Research and Anthropology in Lisbon, and Dr. Katinka Freustadt, who is a professor of modern South Asian studies at the University of Oslo. Welcome both to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks for the invitation.
1: Uh, Our pleasure. So, of course, as you can see from the podcast notes, uh, we're talking about a fascinating fascinating publication called Beyond Courtrooms and Street Violence, uh, Rethinking Religious Offense and Its Containment. Um, Brand new OUP publication. Well, let's, uh, where do we start? Okay, Rethinking Religious Offense. So you're worried about this whole religious offence thing. What is what is this religious offence that you're referring to?
0: Well, there's been a lot of um, great research on the notion of religious offence and how it's come to dominate uh, a lot of um, the politics in South Asia in the recent decades. And uh, a lot of the scholarship is really very sound and very good. And a lot of it draws attention to how the law, uh, most of which originated in the colonial period is not as successful in um, mitigating religious offences as its founders probably thought. Um, But instead, it is maybe sparking a lot of religious controversies and so on and so forth. And so um, how this happens has been discussed back and forth by scholars for a number of years. And to some extent, we have joined this uh, discussion in earlier publications. But then when we came together and started to talk about how many issues and we've actually seen up close while doing fieldwork or simply being around, visiting people in South Asia, in which what could have been become a large controversy actually does not really develop, does not escalate. And then we, once we started to think about that, we thought, well, maybe there is a point to be made about how some sorts of controversies are handled locally or mitigated locally, without ever reaching the news, without ever reaching the courtrooms, without ever reaching the streets, and so that's how we began.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating um, enterprise, actually. You know, the, you know, rethinking religious events and its containment. You know, containment at the local level. And of course, we'll dive into uh, we'll dive into the nuts and bolts of the, the six uh, contributions. But maybe let's say uh, another word about. You know what what was the actual genesis like what what was the impetus was it was it an encounter was it a particular case study a symposium a talk like where did this book idea come from
0: well um one of us had um, a collaborative research project named um, Indian Cosmopolitan Alternatives, which uh, was funded by the Research Council of Norway. And so we'd already done quite a bit of research on um, how people sometimes cross officially official religious boundaries in pursuit of divine um, interference sometimes, and uh, also on how sort of top-down modes of... Uh, Intended religious cosmopolitanism in terms of of law, um, mitigated religious conflict or or at least tried to do so. And so it was because of this that we um, had already worked quite a bit on religious offence and saw that there's a gap in the scholarship that... uh, it would be possible for us to address uh, by the kinds of fieldwork that we had done um, as a part of this uh, collaborative research project. So that's how we joined forces and, and started to think about how, how we could develop a platform from which we could um, expand the scholarship on um, everything from blasphemy controversies to scholarship on religious, religious tussles.
2: Yeah, if I can add something uh, to that, uh, well, I was lucky enough to be part of the Indian Cosmopolitan Alternative Project, and uh, I I kind of joined the project a bit later than uh, it will, well into its, I think, third year, and um, the notion of religious offence and the idea of Con- various form of containment in a way helped me uh, look at my own material from a different angle. So I I could say I can I was broadly looking at interreligious um, relationships and uh, forms of violence in uh, in an urban context in Benares. Uh, but uh, the idea of religious offense um, uh, in a way made me think in. Yeah, in different ways about what I was looking at, and especially got me really interested in the uh, in a form of containment as I frame it in my own chapter in the book uh, that is policing. So how the presence of security forces to maintain peace and order uh, in a, in a shared and contested religious site uh, is or not a form of containment, and what are the impacts on that. So yeah I I I mean I I'm really glad I had this chance and um uh it's uh, I think uh, a a strong contribution of the book if I can already say that <laughs> uh it's uh, the ways in which it kind of links together the scholarship uh, on religious offense and the scholarship on uh, coexistence and mitigation and uh, in, in a critical way though like we, we don't kind of trace a rosy picture of we all live together harmoniously but there are stake in that and there there are of course power relationship involved in that
1: yeah so you mentioned in passing your particular study uh, so as the listeners will know if you pull up the podcast notes Uh, uh, both of the uh, co-editors have contributed um, a a chapter to the volume we'll we'll take a deep dive into that and Vera will perhaps speak in a moment about her particular contribution of of the study in Benares but um, before we do that you mentioned something important that we'll touch on now that the the idea of um, who might be interested in this book What subfields does it implicate? Uh, What audiences? What interests? Uh, Certainly, without you know, uh, clearly uh, scholars of South Asia, clearly, but but there's it seems to me there's um, there's a great deal of potential impact this sort of book could have to a number of uh, interested parties. And what would you have to say about that?
2: Uh, I I can start, Katinka, if you. Uh, I think, well, of course, South Asian scholars, South Asian, uh, scholars, uh, South Asian is, would, of course, be interested in that. More bro- broadly, I would say um, scholars and uh, other people working and being interested in, uh, in transgression, religious transgression and uh, more broadly I would say blasphemy. But uh I think it also speaks a lot to uh as I was saying um critical peace studies and uh, um the debates broad debates about um peace and violence and uh how the two are in a way uh, need in a way need to be looked at um concomitantly not uh Either or or, uh, and uh, basically, I think students who are interested in uh, in complex societies where uh, different kind of people live together and uh, have to, uh, well, all societies nowadays should be and are like that. So I think it's it it ha- it has a potential
0: really wide uh, impact. I, I i agree with that i think uh, this book could be interesting for um people within a number of research fields and uh, and right now a lot is written about um religious politics identity politics um vigilantism and the like which are important research topics but i also think that our book could speak to um how Many parts of South Asia are still characterized by a rather extraordinary ability to accommodate difference and sometimes come to terms with uh, remarks and acts that can be seen as hurtful. And even as we also emphasize how this coming to terms with uh, um, face uh, can sometimes with fraught, be fraught with um, uh, repression, um, so it's it's absolutely not a rosy picture that we're trying to paint here, but it's uh, it's it's what sort of um, everyday realities in a plural society can sometimes be like that sometimes you just have to um, you have to accept that um, people sometimes, um, speak or act in ways that you do not necessarily agree with and how do people deal with
1: that would you say that these studies and you know the themes that you you discuss in this book would you say they illumine um these tensions uh these tensions in a to pluralistic society within south asia or in general beyond south asia
0: Well, this is specifically about South Asia, and I think it will primarily speak to an audience who are already familiar with this region. Um, But of course, uh, people who uh, are interested in um, learning about that part of the world without necessarily having any uh, prior background from it, I I think um, some of the chapters certainly would be really worth uh, to read because they do speak to how... A society which has been grappling with um, tensions and contradictions for a very long time is actually managing that, whether for better or for worse.
1: Indeed, it does seem, I mean, my my role, I guess my pension in general, but particularly my role on the podcast is to, say, to stay broad strokes and to stay sort of big picture. And it seems to my mind without question, there, there are the case studies uh, illumine sort of religion and tensions and litigation on the ground in South Asia. But without question, they they would perhaps make great food for thought for people interested in in um, you know peace studies or um, various other subfields beyond South Asia that are grappling with similar sort of communal tensions or litigating offense, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so maybe perhaps uh, if you could take a little bit of a deep dive and tell us what your contribution was uncovering. What is it about?
2: Sure. Um, so my chapter is the last one and um, probably is the less cheerful of all of that. <laughs> because, well, uh, we're
1: going to end on a happy note. So we'll start with <laughs> yours. <laughs>
2: it's going to improve after mine. Um, well, no, actually I am... I look at uh, what I frame as a sort of top-down form of containment, which I said uh, before is policing, um, by drawing on the on research that I've conducted in uh, in Banaras around the now most famous Kashi Vishwanath Temple and Gyanvapi most compound. Uh, where security measures and security forces as have been present since the 90s so after the um, during the Ramjan Mahumi movement for that that led to the destruction of the Babri, Babri mosque and precisely to um uh prevent another uh, defilement of the Babri mosque to uh, to occur and um I was basically interested in uh, finding out how people of both commun- religious communities, Hindus and Muslims, uh, interpreted and lived with uh, the, the everyday presence of uh, of police. And uh, although initially I found many accounts that were um, kind of um, critical about the presence of police uh, that they saw as, um, not uh, useful because they kind of insisted of a narrative of uh, peaceful coexistence, which is a kind of uh, cliché on on Banaras as a as a city of uh, harmonious interreligious coexistence in UP, which is uh, on the other hand the regions where uh, uh, increased uh, communal violence is observed. Um, on the other hand, though, I also found that. Uh, through the years uh muslims um local muslims especially who were in a way confronted every day with uh mainstream narratives depicting the gambapi mosque as a a sort of illegal structure as as a as a as a as a place that didn't belong in in that space um they kind of experience the presence of police as uh, not really uh, making them feel more safe, but instead augmenting their uh, feeling of insecurities. And uh, they react in a way, um, and I um, I give accounts from some interlocutors, uh, they react by um, experimenting with form of self-containment or self-censorship in which they try to put themselves in situation in which they would not get angry because increasingly uh, I observed that they don't and they can't really, they're not in the position to express their own anger. So we see in this chapter, we see um, a top-down form of containment, which is policing, policing which is in a way countered or um yeah which provoke a bottom up form of containment that is uh, self censorship which is yeah as i said not very cheerful <laughs> mm. but i'm afraid uh, that's that's the thing <laughs> and with with well, the current um escalation of the controversy i uh, i mean that's gone of course further
1: well, uh- cheerful or not it's 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 uh it's uh, our job to make sense of what's happening and yeah, perhaps sure. all the more perhaps all the more important in, in in not so cheerful situations um maybe we can now uh maybe Katinka you could touch on your contribution and then we'll we'll talk about some more broad strokes uh themes of the book but go ahead and tell us about your study
0: sure i will so my case study is also from the same uh, federal state as that of uh, vera latsariti it's from uttar pradesh uh, but from a different city um the city where i did fieldwork is uh, kanpur which is an industrial city that um very rarely is visited by um scholars for some funny reason uh anyhow so <clears throat> that's where i've been doing field work for quite a few years now uh actually since the early 1990s and um in this particular chapter i situate myself uh close to uh, a kali temple in the outskirts of town and this is an area where um there are quite a lot of um working-class people, and it's also an area where um, to some extent the um, controversy over religious conversion has made itself felt. Um, What we've seen is that there, as in many other places uh, throughout India, there are um, Christians who um, either live there or who have come to the area and who are then accused of Um, trying to convert local Hindus. And so in one of these cases, there was a family that had become Christian. And shortly after having converted, um, they started to remove the iconography of um, Hinduism from outside their house. And a lot of people have these small deity tiles that they have fixed outside their entrances to signal that uh, this is a Hindu house and also to uh, get some kind of divine protection to their house and their family. So this newly converted family, they started to smash these tiles. And that was of course um, not to the liking of their Hindu neighbors, some of whom reacted. And so it's this act of reaction that I'm um, trying to discuss in this chapter. So, there were these housewives, right, around who heard the bang, 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 bang when they spat down and tried to remove these deity tiles. And that alarmed them. And they came together and they thought, what is going on? Why are our neighbors trying to kill God, as they termed it? Uh, Bhagwan marna hai That was the expression they were using. And to me, that was rather puzzling because it wasn't a consecrated uh a murti or anything it was a tile um, but still it was seen as having a religious efficacy it was seen as embodying the divine in a way that made it very hurtful to them extremely hurtful to them to see someone destroying it um, and so this was the point at which they try to find out what to do should they uh, try to get their men folk to um, get in touch with a local political leader who could then maybe initiate a court case, or what should they do? So as they were trying to find out how to deal with this hurtful act, um, they also started asking around, well, why did the family smash these tiles? Do Christians necessarily have to do this? And eventually finding out that, yeah, well, Maybe this is a central tenet of Christianity, at least some forms of Christianity, to, to remove or um, everything that signifies their previous beliefs and religious practices. Then somehow they started to um, understand why the act was done and why the act was committed. And that somehow quietened their anger. So the title of my chapter is Swallowing Hurt. And I think this was what they did when um, learning why, for Christians, it was seen as a necessary thing to remove those deity um, tiles. Um, That said, in a slightly different situation, this particular case could easily have escalated into something a bit more serious, at least, um, though that did not happen. And I think it's really important that we also take into account uh, those situations that, that never really fully developed, that, that are somehow resolved um, without making larger political ripples. And I think it's, it's uh, time that we include those kinds of cases in our understanding of uh, what kind of um, dynamics that can arise out of um, small incidents, the kind of small incidents that sometimes spark much larger religious offence controversies, the kinds that we can read about in the international press, for instance.
1: Mm. Now, um, with respect to this particular um, instance, example, to what do you attribute the de-escalation? To what do you attribute um, the extent to which this was contained locally and and that sort of an explosion potential explosion was mitigated
0: i think uh primarily it was because the persons who reacted were not the same i mean the persons who found this act offensive and who wondered how to react were not um in the right position to actually do something um that was the first thing the second thing was um Simply the fact that they lived in a neighborhood where they have to get along. This was a neighboring house, the newly converted family did not really, had never really offended anyone before, they would have to get along after that, and so eventually they let the matters rest. And I think the fact that there was a prior relation between um, the parties here mattered Quite a lot, even though I know fully well that in a lot of the larger um, offense controversies that has arisen out from South Asia, just think of the RCLBB case in, in Pakistan, for instance. There was precisely this prior relation that did nothing to de-escalate the situation, rather on the contrary, right? So so I wouldn't say that this, this fact alone um, was what it took to 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 uh prevent uh, the matter from from jumping scale as we term it in the
1: book mm. fascinating so there are you know four remaining um contributions i wonder if we might like to say a sentence or two about each if you're up for it shall we uh, maybe let's uh now that we've <laughs> now that we've we've worked backwards for the for the final and penultimate chapters perhaps let's now start at the top with uh actually a scholar who's um i have had the good fortune of collaborating with in the past, but in terms of uh, Indian goddess studies, and who's been on the podcast, Otahuskin uh, uh, has a contribution. Do we want to say a word about that?
0: Yes, I can say something about Uta Huskin's chapter. It's 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 a really fascinatingly written um, it, it, chapter. It's as fascinating
1: which... as 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 it is disturbing, data wise. I mean, not not scholarship wise.
0: <laughs> yes, by fascinating, I I actually mean well written. Um, because Uta Huskin, she she writes this chapter in a very captivating way. Um, And it's disturbing also, as you say, because it is about a murder that happened in uh, in a temple in uh, Kanchipur, I mean, in southern India. So what happened here was that uh, in the middle of uh, an annual festival, the manager of the temple was murdered, and the question that then uh, arises from that is: how did they how did they actually deal with this uh, this murder, which is a hugely polluting event, especially happening in the festival period, in the temple premises. And so there was blood, there was death, there was sniffer dogs, and there were policemen walking about in the temple with their shoes on. Uh, and how do you deal with that? And so interestingly, um, what happened was not that anyone was charged according to the legal sections that prescribe religious offenses, because the murder itself was, was more than enough to deal with. Um, but what happened was that the pollution or the polluting aspects of this was mitigated by means of of, of a great purification ritual that was um, initiated in order to sort of cleanse the table, temple premises before the original um, festival rituals could, could start again. And, and um, this purification ritual was, was something that required a number of priests who could... Uh, um, uh, conducted and a thousand water pots. And Otto does not provide further detail, but the point of her chapter is to suggest how certain offences in certain cases can be mitigated ritually rather than by invoking the law. And I think that's a very important conclusion to, to, to bring with us in this volume.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a compelling chapter, not because of the obviously uh, provocative and, and and sensational subject, but, you know, she she writes in a very um, uh, accessible, almost, uh, she tells a story. She's able to really grip you in and tell you the story about the data and, and this tension between secular law, uh, religious and secular law. It really, I mean, this is a tension we see across uh, South Asian uh, phenomena, studies, this, you know, where does, you know, is there a line between what we think of as the sacred and the secular? Is this tile divine or not divine, right? Is it? But this isn't a temple, but, you know, we've put an image on here. We can, we can sacralize anything. We can perform arty on an, a car engine, you know, etc. Uh, etc. Et and so it, it really is a fascinating um, uh, study. So uh, shall we perhaps go in order? Or do either one of you want to say a, a quick word about the, the second uh, contribution?
2: Yes sure I, I will uh, speak about uh, briefly about the um, chapter by Kastin Cheer, also from the University of Oslo which is titled uh, ritualizing offense mitigating reenactment of sectarian rivalry so we are still in Kanchipuram uh, and uh, the interesting fact uh, about um, the first two chapters I find is that they deal with uh, um, intra-religious, or in this case inter-sectarian and uh, uteusken intra-sectarian, we could say, uh, frictions, which uh, uh, are rarely not dealt with in scholarship on religious offence because we we are uh usually uh hearing and uh, uh, the the sort of material available in media is basically uh, frictions between two different religious communities But here we are um uh, the chapter of um the deals with uh, long standing intersectarian frictions between shaivas and vaishnavas uh, in uh, in kanchipuram that uh, um are of course in the past uh, uh, mostly emerged over philosophical uh, matters and competition for uh, royal patronage. Um, We know however that uh, religious festivals and uh, processions have uh, in a way historically been in a, an arena for um, confrontation and potential conflict and violence, of course. And it is not in a way surprising that uh, this is also the case also for uh, intra-sectarian friction. And the article engages and analyzes um, two public temple festivals uh, of two main um, temples, and especially the, uh, lo- the, it looks, uh, the chapter looks at the um, a ritual uh, called Etal, which means uh, insult or mutual uh, insult, uh, which consists of uh, the deity going in procession, turning the back to uh, the other uh, deity, to the temple of the other deity. Uh, so we have uh, Shiva process in procession and turning the back to uh, the temple of Vishnu and vice versa in two different occasions. And uh, uh, she dialogues uh, very nicely with the literature on rituals and showing how rituals can, uh, in a way, both um, challenge uh, um, well, both confirm power relationship, but also challenge uh, challenge them. Uh, and uh, in a way, in her the point in her chapter is that. The ritualization of this potential offense is a way of mitigating the long-standing conflict between the two uh, the two groups, and uh, she very nicely also um, uh, analyzes the ways in which the crowd of devotees and priests uh, is involved in this uh, uh, sort of. Um, uh, Climax of uh, of the ritual of insult and how uh, it it kind of the ritual in, in it, it kind of allowed to uh, let these frictions in a way rest. And uh, although she she mainly analyzes uh, the child ritual in Kanji, uh, she also looks uh, or may com- draw comparisons with other. Uh, cases, for instance, uh, um, in which there is a sort of ritualization of the offense or ritualization of uh, potential uh, political conflict. And she mentions uh, briefly analyzed the case of uh, Kali uh, with a, a procession of a Christian saint, Sebastian in Kerala, uh, encountering and visiting a temple of Kali which became also a sort of um uh political i mean there the were um i think rss were involved and um trying to stop this practice but uh, it it kind of uh kind of didn't work in the end <laughs> and uh, and the other ritual that uh, she analyzes is the wagatari border and um or the daily border retreat ceremony performed by the um, by the Indian border security forces and the Pakistani rangers. So uh, the chapters is in a way for grounding the persistent roles of rituals uh, in society and more broadly and more specifically in. Uh, um, as a strategy of containment of potential
1: frictions. Fascinating. And again, we see this theme of, um have to say, taking very seriously the reality of the ritual realm that... The ritual realm is the realm in which we can purify and address and mitigate murder. It's, you know, it's the realm in which we can we can um, it's the realm of the offense of you know the mortis uh, not facing each other the way you know one might be offended if a human being were to turn their back for you. So it's it, it really it is fascinating to see what we would think of typically as secular or interpersonal issues being managed and resolved and massaged in the ritual realm. That it's not only taken as real as the mundane, but in some ways it has the elevated status as, for example, a in front of a magistrate, being in a courtroom, being in sort of a, a realm that is very important for adjudicating and navigating what we would think of as um, the secular world or secular concerns. I, I find that utterly fascinating. Um, I suppose we should say a, a quick word, if we can, about the remaining two contributions. Uh, the next contribution is is a contribution by uh, Roni Parchak, I believe it, from Tel Aviv University. It's one called uh, Beyond Demarcations, Handling a Sensitive Hagiography of a Medieval Sufi Saint in Modi's India. What do we see in yeah. this chapter? Yeah,
0: I'll, I'll, I'd like to say a few words about that chapter, because it, it sort of reverses what you just said about uh, ritual. Because um, Okay, so let me start with the beginning. So uh, she takes us to... Um, a medieval Sufi saint named Sharafuddin whose shrine is located in, in Hyderabad. And um, what she describes here is, is a sort of pamphlet or a tract that is being distributed at this shrine. And it's a, it's not a very old pamphlet, but it's a, it's a rather newly produced pamphlet apparently. And she uh, analyzes very closely the content of this. And in this pamphlet, It is described the power of Sharafuddin. And she has a few stories or tales from this um, pamphlet that she discusses in details. And I can't go into all of them. But one of them which I think is uh, significant is the story about how the saint Sharafuddin traveled uh, from Iraq to South India to teach Islam. And there's a story here about how the saint entered the temple to pray. Upon which the main deity in the temple, this was a Hindu temple, mind you, though it's not specified which one. So the main deity fell down on its face as if it was bowing to Sharafuddin. And when people around saw this, the deity lying flat on its face, they were, of course, angered. But when the locals confronted Sharafuddin, he asked them to ask the deity, which said that uh, he had thrown himself down in respect. Um, and of course, this uh, is a way of telling the story in a way that um, subordinates the deity to um, Sharafuddin. And that's a uh, sort of, you, you enter the ritual and say, you, you, you sort of show how Sharafuddin posits himself over the Hindu deities. And this is, of course, a potential offense, right? Um, if any story, uh, don't Hindu reads this tract, he or she would likely get very offended by this, uh, one could think at least. But then the thing is that since this pamphlet is only published in Urdu and it's not digitalized, it's not circulated outside this shrine, it's only given out to um, followers who actually come and ask for it, then it doesn't really have the sufficient, the, the wide distribution that it takes for something to to spread and get the attention of Hindu exclusivists who would, uh, in other contexts, maybe react and, and and take this this matter further. So so that's what she discusses in this case. Um, that's how the sensitive hagiography of this medieval Sufi saint is handled. Handled and by handling this hagiography in this way, nothing really happens. Um, and that's the interesting part of the story. So, um, yeah, something that could have been heretic is not treated as such because it's um, kept out of sight.
1: Fascinating. Yeah, I do see. I do see what you mean in terms of uh, the uh, the opposite emphasis, the reversal of some of the themes, and and uh, and by the same token, it's yet so fascinating that the the scene of the crime or the scene of the events or the the incident is in the very ritual sphere involving the, the morty itself. It's utterly fascinating. Um, Let's say a quick word on uh, the the final of the six uh, uh, contributions um, by Radhika Chopra. It's called A Dialogue of Shrines Eclipsing Offense in Amritsar's Heritage Street.
2: Yes, uh, I will uh, speak briefly about that. Um, Well, Radhika's chapter is fascinating and beautifully written. I really like the way she, uh, she writes and she in a way, walk us uh, through Amritsar uh, and uh, she, she kind of provides us with a spatial and visual uh, ethnography of the area around the uh, Sikhtar uh, Sahib or Golden Temple and uh, she explores uh, potential offences and their containment in the context of a Hindu-Sikh uh, relationship and um, the main thing i uh, it's that she frames architecture and maybe more broadly urban space as the site in which multiple negotiations uh, take place and importantly as the site that embodies both a history of violence where we have traces of of a past history of uh, potential offences and offences uh, and violence, but on the other hand, space also, in a way, embodies the overcoming uh, and uh, uh, maybe the mitigation of this this uh, these offences and this history of violence. So the 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 author walks us through the city, particularly down to this new heritage street, which is the result of um we could say a top down uh, redevelopment that took place between two thousand fifteen and two thousand sixteen, and, and uh, which uh, aimed at in a way uh, restructuring the, the the main main area around the golden temple as a sort of showcase of. Um, uh, ordered vision of uh, Sikhism, and um, mm. although uh, well, uh, and Amritsar in a way is being coded as the capital of Sikhism within this uh, in this attempt. Um, however, the the these recent redevelopments are also in line with a long history of efforts to uh, filter out Hindu elements from. Um, uh, from sikhism and through acts uh, which could could be uh, uh described as uh, religious offense and uh, she recalls especially the removal of hindu um murtis from uh, uh, from the golden temple compound in the early 9 um, 900 uh and uh, it, it, uh she recalls the desecration of a hindu temple in the 1980s uh, so during at uh, the argument of the Sikh independent uh, movement for uh, uh yes for an independent state um however I mean the, the main thing is that her spatial analysis um mm. of the newly heritageized Ambrita suggests that this central part of the cities in a way continues to accommodate elements that apparently contradict this um uh, Redeveloped landscape and this order uh, idea of uh, of Sikhism, and she looks uh, precisely at two shrines. And one is when one is a, a Shani Deota shrine, which has been left more or less in the middle of Heritage Street. Um, uh, unlike other uh, apparently uh, discordant elements that have been veiled by some Parda de um uh, but that remains there with. Its Devanagari inscription as a sort of uh, contradictory element, uh, and uh, and the other uh, shrine that she looks at is a, a cenotaph of Baba Tal with beautiful uh, frescoes that are um uh, depict the life of guru nanak but at the same time are uh, populated by hindu gods and in a way uh, envision a sikhism which is um which is full of embedded into the hindu traditions as well so yes that's um Space as a site of uh, uh, memory, a memory of violence, but also the site of domestication and mitigation of uh, of past and future violence, we could say.
1: Thank you for covering those um, individual contributions. Let's uh, pan out a bit to, to camera two, maybe the big picture. What do you most hope folks would take away from this volume? What are its central themes, aims, outcomes?
0: I think one central theme is, uh, and this is very broadly, um, is is how religion and politics are almost all always uh, interconnected in some ways, uh, not just in South Asia but many other places as well. And to to see how this works on the ground and up is is one of the things that this book um, does in 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 one particular way. And so the the focal point of um, Potential religious offences uh, is is only one among many, but but this is the one that we take in this book. And um, yeah, I think one of the things that we, at least I, I want to um, people to notice is is how. Um, it's it's not enough to 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 uh, study only politics without religion. It's not really enough to study religion without the politics because they are so so interconnected. And uh, and uh, this is one of the things that the book shows. Aside from the particular uh, religious offense dynamics that we want to broaden,
2: I I, I would like to add something uh, to this, which would maybe be a sort of a methodological takeaway. So I think one. Uh, like one point that we try to make in the introduction is that uh, the study of religious offence should also look beyond uh, the headlines, should look beyond the episodes of violence in the street and should look beyond um, legal proceedings which are accessible uh, everywhere uh, now. Uh, so in a, I think the book shows that by really doing on-the-ground work and uh, also long-term work especially, you are able to show how even, I mean, even the spectacular cases of uh, religious offence or blasphemy controversies are in a way embedded in uh, uh, local realities and in local uh, politics, uh, long-term politics of coexistence and violence and power relationship. And this is really um, a perspective, a gaze that we cannot have otherwise. So... We need this kind of research to broaden the picture. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. I'm glad you mentioned the the, the very methodology or the stance of the book, which itself is an innovative contribution. Um, perhaps obvious, but nevertheless, I'll, I'll, let's see what comes. Why the title Beyond Courtrooms and Street Violence? <laughs>
2: Well, uh, that's, I think that's precisely what I was saying. So let's look beyond courtroom and street violin and see um, see what, what happens on the ground. Uh, and I repeat, it's not to try and say that on the ground everything works perfectly, but on the ground things are much more complicated and uh, layered, so we we, we need to uh definitely look at uh, spectacular cases of offense but maybe track down what are the uh, local uh, background and development of uh, of those cases but also look beyond them look at uh what happens in everyday life and uh what what people do and think and how uh, even in contradictory ways they live together and um, well, try to accommodate and uh, resist and be resilient in case of, um, I mean, in case of particularly minorities and uh, vulnerable individuals.
1: Fantastic. Was there anything else about the book that you hoped we touch on?
0: We might um, want to point out that this is um, a book version of a special section that was published in South Asia, Um journal of south asian studies so the special section came in 2021 and uh, the book version was published in 2023 this year
1: fantastic um maybe one final question that i often touch on is this work uh that you will be continuing somehow i mean whether individually or collectively is this you know what's next for each of you or what now shall i say
0: we have been talking about um, moving um, this particular research question to um, to a European context, but we haven't really um, got very much further on that because of, at least for my case, shortage of time. Um, but I'm working right now on um, ritual change within a particular Kali temple that I've been following since 2013, which. Of course, is is a very interesting period in India's recent history, and so to examine those uh, changes in that context, I think is is also interesting in its own right. Fascinating. Yeah, uh,
2: yeah as Katinka said, we have begun thinking of we would like to work <laughs> together again. So, uh, I, I, I we definitely should find a time and money to do more research together. Um, Yeah, definitely I think it would be interesting to to broad the empirical focus of of this kind of research and uh, well, and maybe broaden the scope in terms of looking more at uh, politics of uh, hate and uh, hurt feelings. And uh, but yes, we we have uh, this is just uh, too embryonic to to be put into a a sort of research question or anything. Yeah. On the other hand, I'm 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 working on uh, I continue to work on Banaras and uh, I'm currently looking at uh, still at policing, but at how policing and security intersects with the politics of heritage in the city. And I hope to conclude soon (laughs) this research. And meanwhile, I started a little project here in Lisbon on the same topics on heritage and security in the historic center of Lisbon.
1: Mm.
2: And uh, that's, that's, yes, that in a way give me access to new interlocutors. There is a huge South Asian diaspora here that I'd like to work
1: with so that's uh fascinating well certainly for either of you uh if and when you happen to borrow the book i know a guy who runs a podcast (laughs) about such things um you know just to come full circle both of your um potential future research interests uh to my mind highlights a theme that we touched on at the outset that i was hoping to point to um how to say the applicability of this process to various other contexts, whether the European context, whether it has been like there, there is um, there's uh, so much of this that is uniquely South Asian, and also so much of this enterprise that is great food for thought for probably a variety of contexts where we see the interplay between religious religion and politics, um, sort of the interplay between sort of the secular and the, the ritual spheres. Um, you know, the negotiations of space and culture and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So very fascinating work. Thank you both for appearing on the podcast today.
2: Thank you for having us. Thank you.
1: Great. For those listening, we, of course, have been speaking with Drs. Vera Lazaretti and uh, Katinka Freustad on uh, Beyond Courtrooms and Street Violence, Rethinking Religious Offense and Its Containment. Keep well. Keep listening until next time and keep contemplating this little thing called religious offense in South Asia and beyond. Take care.